was good. Aren't you glad to be at church tonight? You're here. You made it. God's got something good for you. I got a feeling that tonight's going to be a good night. In case you didn't know, we're in a series in the book of Exodus. We have been now for almost a year. So if you didn't know, you're new. Welcome. Tonight, we're going to be getting into the seventh commandment in the Ten Commandments that we've been focusing on here recently. So tonight's we're going to be focusing on the seventh commandment, which says, you shall not commit adultery. It comes from Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. Those who commit adultery, what part of you shall not commit adultery did you not understand? It's pretty clear. Now, I know this can be kind of sensitive when you talk about this subject. It brings up a lot of feelings. There are a lot of potential landmines that you can get into talking about this. So I'm just going to first off ask for you to give me grace as we talk about this. If it brings up pain from your past that you would just receive the grace of the Lord and also extend that to me. Uh, rather than caveating everything the whole time and giving disclaimers as I talk about this, I'm just going to kind of plow on through it and trust God to use this message to bless you. If you've experienced pain in this subject or maybe you've made mistakes in this area, I want you to receive the healing that God has for you and also his forgiveness as you repent of sin. God will forgive you of sin so you can walk forward without guilt weighing you down. Now, I'm going to try to be sensitive. I know we have a few younger people in the room, but this will be pretty much like a rated R sermon, and I'm not sorry. So if you brought your kids in, prepare to have some conversations and follow up. I heard a story about a pastor that preached on adultery in like a Midwest small town church, and that's where like they'd bring the whole family into church in those days. And on the way home, there was like a six-year-old boy, and he asked his dad, uh, trying to figure out, process what he had heard. Dad, what does it mean you shall not commit agriculture? <laughs> and the dad said, well, son, it means you don't plow in another man's field. <laughs> it's the perfect definition. So we're talking about in this sermon, adultery and also fornication. When you hear the term fornication, it's the same Greek word porneia. That's where we get sexual immorality. And that's kind of a catch-all term for any type of sexual sin. Any sexual activity between partners who are not married to each other. Uh, this would be sleeping with someone you're not married to. So those of you who are living together, sleeping together, uh, that would be porneia. Or looking at pornography. That's where we get the term porneia. Or reading your romance novels with graphic sex scenes. Or watching your TV mature shows that have all kinds of sexual scenes in them, but it's not porn, hey, so it's okay. No, it's porneia, and that would be sexual immorality in God's eyes. But sleeping together outside of marriage is pretty common in our culture today. In ancient Israel, when people did that, here's how they dealt with it. Uh, two people, they're not married, they sleep together. Uh, the next day, what would happen is uh, the guy would owe the girl's father a monetary fine. And if he approved, the dude would be forced to marry his daughter. Which I don't think is a terrible policy, by the way. I think that would cut down on a lot of the sleeping around. If, you know, you went out on a date and the next day the, dude, the girl's dad knocks on your door like, yo, you owe me $10,000. You'd be like, well, I liked it, but it wasn't worth that, you know. And, and he's like, by the way, you're getting married tomorrow too. So I hope you got a suit ready to go. Uh, it's it's, I think that would put Tinder out of business if that was the policy. <laughs> and then adultery is admittedly more serious. It's voluntary sex between a married person and a partner other than your lawful spouse. Interestingly, I didn't realize this until I was studying this this week, but in ancient Israel, the term adultery was only used when a married woman was involved. It wasn't considered adultery for a married man to have sex with, let's say, a slave or a prostitute or a single girl. It was adultery if any man had sex with a married woman. And it might seem like an unfair standard to us today, but it makes sense when you consider that there was a need to preserve the integrity of the lineage of God's people. They didn't have paternity tests back then. And so, no, it's not that God wanted to be harder on the women than the men. And let boys be boys, you know, wink, wink. It's that the ethnic people of Israel were the group through whom God intended to provide a savior. 
and messianic prophecy about Jesus involved his lineage and heritage. So infidelity didn't just break the seventh commandment, but it also jeopardized God's plan of salvation. In ancient Israel, adulterers were put to death. It was especially heinous and called the great sin. I thought this was interesting. The most ancient form of Hebrew writing was pictographic writing. They use pictures, like you think of hieroglyphics. And this is the pictographic ancient uh, form of the word adultery. So from right to left, because the Hebrews, they wrote from right to left, uh, which makes sense when you realize they started writing using chisels, right-handed with the chisel. It's easier to move that direction. And then they just kept that method. But what you got there is a fish and an ox and the lips of a mouth. It's the Hebrew letter nun and aleph and pay. And it basically means to scatter the strength of your seed or your offspring. That's what adultery is in the core essence. It's to scatter the strength of your offspring or the next generation. And it really makes a lot of sense when you think about what adultery does. For Christians, we tend to think of the Ten Commandments as just like God's standard of morality and right and wrong, and that is true. But in ancient Israel, when you think about what rabbis and Jewish commentaries add to the picture, they not only thought of it as a a morality standard, but also the building blocks for a new society. And family is the fabric of society. Why do you think the devil wants to destroy it so badly? The fifth commandment was all about honoring your father and mother because that's the methodology that God chose to pass down faith from one generation to the next family. When you have a committed father and mother and children, it provides security for the vulnerable. It produces offspring, which is part of God's plan. And in ancient times, women didn't hardly ever divorce men. It makes kind of sense to us, I think. They didn't have the same social options So they were kind of stuck in some ways, but men divorced women. And a woman who had been divorced would likely be sentenced to a lifetime of poverty, maybe taken advantage of some women, had to sell themselves into prostitution to survive. And their kids would become impoverished because they didn't have social security or welfare or access back then. So a healthy society, especially a new uh, ancient society required healthy families Committed dad, a committed mom, raising their kids. Adultery is wrong because it destroys families, which ultimately destroys society. You can see God's wisdom and how society needs strong families. That's why at this church, we want to raise up strong families. We want you to have a strong family. If you're still single, uh, we want to prepare you to be a, a component of a strong family. This is the practical and historical side of the equation. Then you want to also consider the spiritual dynamic. Marriage is a covenant relationship. In a covenant relationship, you're saying, I'm going to love you and remain faithful to you in the good days and in the bad days. There are three types of covenant relationships described in the Bible. The highest level of commitment is the covenant relationship between God and man. The next highest level is between a man and his wife. Then the third, the lowest level of commitment, but it's still a covenant relationship, the way that scripture describes it, is between a Christian and his church or her church. God uses family language, he uses body part language. It's like it's supposed to be a fairly committed relationship. It's not like we're just supposed to discard each other when we get on each other's nerves and huff and puff and walk away offended. We're supposed to love each other and forgive. It's a covenant relationship. When you think about marriage, it's the picture of the relationship between Christ and his church, between God and mankind. God says, I'm gonna keep loving you even when you're acting a fool. I'm going to keep pursuing you even when you're not pursuing me. And that's a covenant relationship. So think about your marriage vows. If you had a traditional marriage uh, or maybe you've been to a, a wedding, I've read, pe- you know, read these vows and led people through these vows multiple times. But here's what you say in a traditional marriage, okay? I take you to be my lawfully wedded husband okay, or, or wife. And so it's, gotta be, it's good that it's lawful, right? Like if it's like your fifth um, husband or your 17th wife and it's not lawful. Uh, to have and to hold. So there's a physical component. Like we're gonna hold each other for better, for worse in the good times and the bad, for richer, for poorer, whether we got the vacation home or just a mobile home, <laughs> right? In sickness 
and in health. So maybe, you know, he's really good in bed or he's just bedridden. (laughs) To love and to cherish. So it should be like loving and affectionate, forsaking all others. That's the anti-adultery clause. It's like when I got married to my wife, forsaking all others. That means I've only got eyes for you. All the other women of the world are dead to me. Till death do us part, so it's permanent. It's not a temporary arrangement until we feel like doing something different according to God's holy law. I like that last part because a lot of people today like to make up their own standards of love. But God's the one that gets to set the standard of love. So this is a covenant commitment. I'm going to keep loving you in the good times and the bad. And adultery is wrong because it breaks that covenant promise. It's a violation of a covenant promise. That's why when ancient Israel worshiped other gods or idols, the Bible compares that to spiritual adultery. And spiritual compromise is often preceded by sexual compromise. In 1 Corinthians 6, it says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? So, like, why is this a big deal, Pastor Ryan? Why are we talking about this? What's the big deal? Everybody does it. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. That's a pretty big statement. And then in case you're going to lose hope and feel depressed, it says, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. That's what... Some of you were, honestly, a lot of us were those things. But if you persist in those things, there's a warning there. Those, those types of people that keep doing those things are not the, ki- the kind of people that will inherit the kingdom of God. State Farm, the insurance company, put out the data that uh, last year in West Virginia, 31,000 deer got struck by cars. That's the number one state in America for Little cute deers. Oh, you think that's bad? You should have seen the pictures I didn't pick. I mean, I used a lot of self-control. The fruit of the spirit is self-control. I mean, I found some pictures where like semi-trucks were painted red from deer blood. And there was like Bambi halfway in the cab. And I was like, this is cool, man. But I don't think I should show it. Because I feel like this is not going to be considerate uh, of, you know, the sensitive people. But I, I don't know. I thought it was interesting. But anyway, here's, here's a, you know, this, this will suffice. You got a deer. It's obviously dead. Uh, you get the picture. Every year, lots of deer die. 31,000 last year in West Virginia, number one state. And every year, the number of collisions spikes in the fall. What's going on in the fall? It's mating season. We got some deer hunters in here. In mating season, love is in the air. And like all the pheromones are swirling and the bucks start fighting with each other over the does and the bucks are chasing the does. They got one track minds, you know what I mean? And they'll go chasing after those does and they'll be so focused on on getting what they want. (laughs) There's so many jokes I want to say. I just can't. I just can't do it. Uh... They'll be so focused that they don't even care. There's a semi-truck barreling down the road. Boom. Right? And man, I think that is such a powerful illustration. I've, I've seen so many people who are, man, I'm in love. I know, I know I'm already married and I have obligations, but this other person, oh, she makes me feel so good. Oh, this guy, he gets me. I can't stop thinking about him. Oh, she really understands me. Oh, she looks so good. Oh, and, and like they go chasing after this thing that they think will bring them joy and pleasure and satisfaction, and they don't even see the danger that's barreling down the road that's going to run them over and cause untold levels of pain and brokenness. You might get a few moments of pleasure, but you end up with years in divorce court or decades of kids who resent you for breaking up their family. That's why it says in Proverbs 6.32, whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding. He who does so destroys his own soul. Like one translation says, like he, he hates himself. There have been so many studies that talk about the results of this, but Adultery can cause severe mental illness and disorders for those who commit it and then those who are also cheated on. It can cause PTSD, 
type symptoms, as well as an increased risk of heart attacks. It doesn't have to lead to divorce. I'm going to talk about that, but a lot of times it does lead to, to divorce. The Journal of Men's Health said that the mortality rate for divorced men is 250% greater than for married men. You married men, you better figure out how to make it work with that wife of yours, right? The same study showed that women who were, who were divorced were 24% more likely to have a heart attack. And after their second divorce, the number goes to 77%. And obviously the effects are devastating for kids. And what, what you see is that when people start to stray from their spouse, it's not long after that they often start to stray from God. And there's some practical dynamics with that. Like you see, they'll have an affair, maybe they get divorced, then they're embarrassed. And so then they stop coming to church because the people know something happened. And they stop going to church altogether. And then their relationship with God kind of falls apart. And then the next thing you know, they're far from God. And it started chasing after someone that they weren't married to. Just like with the sixth commandment, when Jesus talked about murder and hate, we talked about that last week. With this seventh commandment, he also elevates the standard with adultery and lust. In Matthew 5, 27, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Okay, so I want to explain this a little bit. It says, with lustful intent. That means desire. Desire. It doesn't mean that you noticed someone is attractive. You can't help but sometimes notice certain people are attractive. There are some people who are just objectively good looking and to pretend they're not is not honest. There are some attractive men. There are some beautiful women and that's just the way it is. And when you notice that, like your brain is wired to notice that, that doesn't mean you're guilty of lust. It means you're observant. When I was a kid in youth group growing up, the youth pastor would say, bounce your eyes, kids. And so it's like, you notice, but then you bounce your eyes. <laughs> Problem is I had really bouncy eyes. So I was like, <laughs> like it's a miracle I didn't throw my neck out, like <laughs> rupture a disc, trying to bounce my eyes. It's not the noticing that is lust. It's when noticing turns into desiring. Desiring, like sometimes at night, I start feeling like the urge to snack and I know I shouldn't snack late at night. That's just like 101 uh, of, of how to keep, you know, fitting into those skinny jeans. Don't snack late at night. But what happens is you walk by the pantry and you look around in there and you're just like, well, let's just see what we got in here. Hmm. You're like, okay. Mm, is this worth it? Any of this worth it? Is any of this speaking to me? You know, you're like, no, no, it's not worth it. I got to go. I just got be good, Ryan, be good. Yeah. The fruit of the spirit is self-control. But then you walk back by and you're like, looking again a second time. Well, you know, that three week old bag of chips is starting to look pretty good. No, 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 don't do it. Don't do it. Right. And then, and the next thing you know, you're walking back by again. You're like, man, that Easter candy from last year is starting to look pretty good. Actually, I think, it, I think it's worth it, right? And, and the thing is, it's, it's not the looking that is lust, but the more you look, the more likely that looking will turn into wanting. It's when you want something that you have no business with, that's when it becomes lust. It's when you say, I want that. And Jesus says, that's like you've committed adultery in your heart. And the reason that he's saying that and using extreme language is it's preventative. It's meant to protect us. It's meant to stop us before we get ourselves into trouble. People who fall into adultery didn't make a bad choice. They made a series of bad choices. Adultery doesn't start below the belt. It starts above the neck. It's not the result of a problem in your pants, but a problem in your heart. Anyone who has cheated physically has been cheating mentally for months and years. It's a process. It always cracks me up when people are like, I don't know what happened. We just made a mistake. It's like, no, you weren't just walking along like, oops, how do we get here naked? <laughs> it wasn't an accident, right? You've probably heard the phrase that the road to hell is paved with good intentions, 
The path to adultery is paved with bad choices. So let me talk about the path to adultery so you know some of the warning signs to look out for. Uh, This isn't like a catch-all, but I think these are some of the key steps that people take. The first is your marriage will have a lack of love and charity. You know love, but to be charitable towards one another. It's to be generous and to be forbearing. A lot of times people end up committing adultery because they're longing for the love and affirmation they should have been getting from their spouse all along. I got to ask you if you're married, is your spouse getting the encouragement and affection and appreciation from you that they crave? Or are they walking around desperate to get that from anyone who will offer a word of praise. Charity is generosity. To be charitable is the opposite of being stingy. But oftentimes we'll be stingy with words of encouragement, whereas we'll be quick to voice disapproval. And you think, well, I don't want him to get a big head. No, it's, it's not your job to keep your spouse humble. It's their own job. Your job is to fill them up. You need to constantly express love and encouragement and appreciation to your spouse. You need to fill him or her up with praise to the point that when someone else does it, they're already full. When someone else comes along and tells your wife that she's pretty, she should say, I know, because my husband tells me 10 times a day. (laughs) Charity is forbearance. That means to be lenient in how you judge each other, to be patient and merciful. But so often we'll judge our spouse more harshly than we would a total stranger. You'll notice, you know, everything she does wrong, everything he does wrong, but you don't see the things that he or she does right. And then you'll get frustrated and that leads to being offended. And then that leads to bitterness and resentment. And you're asking yourself things, you know, having conversations in your head, like, well, why does, why does he have to be like that? That's not the man I I thought I was marrying. Why can't he be more like this guy in the notebook who makes grand romantic gestures? Is it really that hard? Or, you know, he goes to work and his eyes are wandering and he's like, well, why can't my wife be more like this girl I work with, you know? She's always telling me how awesome I am, how I crushed it at work and she respects me. And it's like, well, yeah, bro, of course she respects you. She doesn't have to clean your skid marked underwear. It's easy for her to respect you. And you notice how good she looks, but you didn't see her this morning when she woke up with cream all over her face and she had bad morning breath the same way that, you know, your wife does when you wake up next to her. Rather than using your spouse's faults as an excuse to be unfaithful, you cover them up and you do that with extra love. Whenever people cheat on each other, they will quickly find out that this new person has their own faults and probably even more or the people will run off together and then they, they realize like, well, how are we going to build a life together that started with deception and lies? If this person would cheat on their old spouse, how can I trust them to be faithful to me? It's like people have this realization. They never considered those things. But when it comes to your spouse having faults, and we all do, love covers, covers over a multitude of sins. And this doesn't mean that you excuse like evil behavior or wickedness in your home, but we all sin. This word sin is to miss the mark, to come up short, to stray from the path, right? And we all do that. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but love covers over that. The same way that love caused Jesus to let his blood be shed for you, the blood of Jesus covered your sin so that the Father no longer sees you as guilty, right? And in marriage, love covers over a multitude of sins. You're like, I don't, I don't even see those socks he left on the floor because my love covers over those socks. I don't even know about the socks, <laughs> right? This is love covering over a multitude of sins. And what's crazy is how, you know, all of us, you know, your spouse will have quirks that sometimes irritate you. Uh, and I get that. But what you forget is that God will use those same quirks that irritate you to sanctify you. Like when I got married to my wife, um, she would irritate me when it was like a birthday or a Christmas time. uh, And I'd be like, why are you spending so much on people for these presents? Like, this is bizarre to me. Like, can we just tone it down a little bit? Like, I remember when we first got married, she was heading out the door to shop for both of our moms for Mother's Day. And as she was going out the door, I said, don't spend too much. But God was using her generosity 
to sanctify me and help me not be as stingy. And now I'm like, yeah, let's do it. Let's buy more, you know, things. I, I, I can see how God used her to help me. God brought my wife into my life who has a gentle spirit when, you know, I don't always have a gentle spirit, but it's a perfect person for me. God knows what he's doing. Here, here's the thing. If Jesus tells you to love your enemies, what excuse do you have for not loving your spouse? So that's the first aspect. Here's the next step on the path to adultery. It's a shortage of regular sex. I have never heard of anyone committing adultery or getting divorced because they were having too much sex in their marriage. But I have heard the opposite. I know right now some guy is like, I think we found our home church, honey. (laughs) Welcome home, indeed, I'm home. Here's what it says in 1 Corinthians 7. Do not deprive each other of sexual relations unless you both agree to refrain from sexual intimacy for a limited time so you can give yourselves more completely to prayer. Afterward, after this brief intermission, you should come together again so that Satan won't be able to tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I I know what you're thinking, but I did not write this. (laughs) This is the word of God, y'all. I know. The Bible's pretty cool. Someone right now is like, I, I should start reading this book. This is, a, this is good. God's word is good. So here's the thing. The Bible doesn't say how often a married couple should have sex. That's probably a good thing. That way, you, you know, there leaves room for different situations. But you start to think about, like, how, how often should a married couple have sex? And I'm just going to offer you some pastoral advice. Um, you can take it or leave it. But... I would say at least you should have sex. Think about this. God, God says you should go to church once a week. God says you should rest once a week. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Right, so I think it makes sense that a married couple would have sex at least once a week. Amen? <laughs> like I get really concerned when I talk to people and it's been like weeks and weeks and months. And after a while, you're just glorified roommates. Sex is a part of marriage. Now, me personally, I would recommend that you even consider doing it more often. If you're able and you're healthy. Okay, I asked my wife if it was okay for me to share this. She gave me her blessing, although I know she's still going to be embarrassed, but she's taking one for the team. <laughs> but I would just encourage you to make it more of a regular part of your routine. If you're married, you know, you should wake up. And like in our marriage, we don't wake up and wonder if we're going to have sex that day. It's more like just assumed. And so I, if you're going to floss every day and brush your teeth every day and take a shower every day and eat food every day, why not do this other thing often? It's the most fun you can have as a married person for free. And I, I know some of you are thinking, well, it's easy for you to say. You're young. I'm 38. I've been married 11 years. So you can't just say this is the honeymoon phase. You should have seen me in the honeymoon phase. It's a miracle I got anything done for Jesus. And then in our marriage, right, we have what we would consider with each, okay, with each other, we have like a open door policy with each other. You know, it's like my door is always open to you. If you need me, I'm here for you, right? And it's like, I think this is like a very loving way to approach it. And then obviously, because we love each other, if you know, man, like she's sick or she doesn't feel good or she's exhausted, you're not going to force it or take advantage of the situation. But there's just like a mutual understanding. Whenever you call me, I'll be there. Whenever you want me, I'll be there. Whenever you need me, I'll be there. I'll be around. So I got to stay hydrated and, you know, stay flexible because she can't keep her hands off me. And, you know, the Lord says, be prepared in season and out of season. So I always want to be ready for that call. (laughs) And (laughs) we're not having... (laughs) This isn't just to... uh, avoid adultery, but because sex is awesome. And God created it to be a good thing in marriage between a husband and wife. 
It creates a bond. It releases oxytocin in your brain, which bonds you chemically to the person you're having sex with, which is why it's bad. It's a bad idea to do this with someone you're not in a committed relationship to because it skews your judgment. It feels good. It's comforting. creates intimacy. It's not dirty when it's done God's way. It was God's idea between a husband and wife. It's beautiful. The devil has corrupted sex and made it weird and done all kinds of things to make it it dirty. He's poisoned the water, right? But God's design for sex is life-giving in the right context. And, And, of course, a lack of sex is not an excuse to sin. But when you're hungry enough, even bad cooking starts to smell good. That's why the Bible says, don't deprive each other. And then here's the third step. It's misplaced emotional intimacy. Emotional intimacy is a real need that people have. You, you need to be seen. You need to be known. God wired you that way. And it's important in marriage to have emotional intimacy, not just physical intimacy. But you'll, sometimes you'll see you know, a wife will say, my husband isn't meeting my emotional needs, but this other guy, he, he is. He, he will listen to me. He thinks all my stories are super interesting. He cares about my desires and my hopes and dreams. And I want to say, listen, sister, like he cares about a lot more than just your thoughts. He's after more than that. Most physical affairs start as emotional affairs as a result of confiding in someone other than your spouse. So let me give you some words of wisdom here. You have no business saying anything negative about your marriage to anyone of the opposite sex ever. You have no business spending time alone with anyone of the opposite sex. Not like a work lunch, not carpooling regularly together because it's very difficult for people to spend a lot of time together without forming some kind of emotional intimacy. You have no business sharing your hopes and dreams and desires and disappointments with someone of the opposite sex. God gave you someone to share those things with. It's your spouse who you marry. Proverbs 5 says, drink water from your own well. That applies physically, but also emotionally. You have needs, go to your own well to drink. If you're married... You cannot have a close friend who is of the opposite sex. You can be friends, but there's a difference between friends and best friends. There's a difference between being friends and really close friends. When someone tells me they're really close friends, or God forbid, their best friend is of the opposite sex when they're married, I just see warning lights and red flags going off all over the place. It's a problem. Speaking of friends, in marriage, this is my advice to you. In marriage, your spouse has total veto authority over your friends. If there's some dude who I become friends with and my wife thinks he's going to be like a bad influence on me, she can veto that thing and shut it down. And then for that dude, it's like, you're dead to me. Be gone, right? <laughs> Same thing with my wife. If she has some, some girlfriend, right, and she's like, oh, we get along, but I don't like her, right? It's, you can shut it down. Block her. Block that dude on Facebook. He's dead to you. Why? It's not trying to be controlling. It's that you're wanting to be protective. You want to protect because your spouse can see things that you don't see. Right? I don't know what it is, but women have a sixth sense for someone trying to creep in on their man, don't they? Like, oh, no, I don't like that girl. She's, she's suspicious. So you got to trust that. God will use your spouse to help protect you. Fourth, one of the steps on the path to adultery is a warped view of privacy and individuality. It's weird to me how people will be married, but then they want boundaries and privacy where I, I don't think it's healthy to have it. Or they see themselves as two individuals who live together and maybe sleep together but have different lives, different goals. And that's not the way it's supposed to be. In marriage, two become one. In Matthew 19, Jesus said, since they are no longer two, but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. Two people become one person physically when you join together and consummate the marriage and spiritually when you exchange the vows, right? And go through this process, you, you are one. 
That means you're one in your budget, you're one in your purpose, you're one in your parenting philosophy, you're one in life, to become one. So that's why you don't need privacy from each other other than when you're shopping for Christmas presents or going to the restroom. And I did a little survey on social media yesterday and like 2,000 people responded. 75% of people said they go to the restroom in front of their spouse. Now listen, I'm not judging you, but that's, I'm just not sure about that. I'm not sure. So all all seriousness, I heard this advice from a godly older couple who've been married for decades. And they said, hey, we recommend when possible, try to preserve nudity for moments of intimacy. So that doesn't mean, you know, be all legalistic about it or you got to hide from each other when you get out of the shower. But just think about it. Maybe some things are better left to the imagination. (laughs) But right, privacy in marriage. My wife and I, we share a a password manager so we can log into each other's social media accounts. Uh, we're, We're both of our faces are saved on each other's phones. So you just pick up my phone, it unlocks. You don't even have to put the passcode in. Why? I don't need a passcode for my wife. She doesn't need a, a password-protected situation to, to keep privacy from me because there's complete openness. There's not privacy. Now, here's the thing. You could, you could hear that, and you could be like, well, yeah, me too. But how would you feel if your spouse actually did start looking through your stuff? You'd either, not all of you, but some of you would say, well, what's wrong? Why don't you trust me? In order to have a transparency and intimacy, you have to welcome accountability. If you get all weird about it, like, what are you doing? Why, why do you feel the need to look through my stuff? It's not about you necessarily, but it's the principle of the matter. We, we don't have to keep things private from each other uh, because two have become one. We're on the same page. It's all one thing, right? Like we have one bank account and whatever money we earn from different jobs, it goes into one bank account. It doesn't matter who earned what money because it's all our money. We spend our money. I get really concerned when I see couples living individual lives and spending too much time apart doing their own thing. There's too much individualism. It doesn't mean you have to be together 24-7, but even when you're apart, you're still on the same page because two have become one. And then here's the fifth step. It's little compromises that lead to bigger compromises. It's that third and fourth look that turns into desire, that leads to going out of your way to talking to someone who maybe you're attracted to. That leads to fantasizing. Oh, it's just, it's just thoughts. That leads to maybe other things like pornography or oftentimes people think, well, I'm not looking at pornography, but, but then they're reading things or they're watching TV shows that, that can have the same type of destructive result. What's the harm, Right? Well, James says, sin, when it is allowed to grow, gives birth to death. In Hebrews 13, it says, let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. In other words, let it be kept pure. Let it be pure. To be pure means keep contaminants out. No one else belongs in your marriage bed other than you and the person you're married to. Not physically or mentally. Let the marriage bed be undefiled. And there's a warning, God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. But sin grows and gives birth to death. It starts in the DMs, it ends up in real life. It starts with just fantasy, it ends up in reality. It's okay to have friends of the opposite sex. It's okay to be friendly. I have friends who are of the opposite sex. We're friendly, but there's a level of friendship that you reserve for your spouse that that other people don't get to enjoy. You know, I'm going to be friends with different, different people, different girls, uh, but not the same way that I am with godly male friends or my wife. And that makes sense, right? I don't want you to walk around just being all super sensitive and legalistic about this, but guarding your heart is a good thing because adultery is never just a mistake. Oops, how do we get here? It's the culmination of a hundred little compromises. And Jesus tried to help us avoid going down this path. And that's why he said, if you've even looking at a woman with lust, lustful intent, it's like you've already committed adultery in your heart. Now, I want to just clarify this, right? It's not just what you do that matters to God, but also what's in your heart that matters to God. Now, just like last week when we talked about murder and anger, 
Lust is not the same as committing adultery. Okay, otherwise, I think most people here would be guilty of committing adultery at some point. But Jesus, in this sermon on the mount, is using hyperbolic language. It's extreme language to make a point. And he was really counteracting the culture of the day, making really strong points, getting people's attention with extreme language. So, for example, in the same passage, he says, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Because it's better to be a one-eyed pirate in heaven than a two-eyed fool in hell. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. That's what Jesus said. This is hyperbolic language, right? Does does he literally want you to chop your hand off? No, otherwise we'd have all kinds of crippled people walking around up in here. (laughs) He is saying your soul is worth extreme measures. Maybe that does mean you don't need a smartphone. How would I survive? Well, people have been doing it for thousands of years. You'd be surprised what you could do. This is extreme language, and he is talking this way because in Jesus' day, people had really gotten back into uh, taking a marriage lightly and divorcing each other casually. And so Jesus was pushing back against that. In sexual adultery, it will tear apart families. Family is the fabric of society. And it often precedes spiritual adultery, drifting away from God. It doesn't have to end a marriage. I have seen... Uh, Many marriages where there was adultery, but also the Lord did a healing work and there was forgiveness and reconciliation. And so I would say for anybody, if there's been adultery in your marriage, you can find healing and restoration and there's hope for you. In fact, in scripture, there's an example with Hosea who God commands to marry a promiscuous woman. And especially in those days, that was even more radical than it sounds today. I'm sure he asked God to confirm that a couple times. Did I hear you right? God said, marry this woman. He marries this woman. She commits adultery against him multiple times. And God tells him to go and take her back and to go rescue her and to go redeem her and keep loving this woman who was unfaithful when the, the law commanded her be stones. But God allowed all this to happen as an image of his faithfulness to us despite our spiritual wandering. Anybody here relate to that? You wandered from God. He just kept loving you and you kind of drifted in and out and made all kinds of mistakes. God just keeps loving you to a radical extent in a way that just defines logic. God keeps loving us. But there are some reasons in scripture that God allows divorce. And I don't have time to do a whole sermon on divorce Uh, There's a lot of complex aspects to this. But a couple of the reasons the Bible specifies would be uh, abandonment of the believer by the unbeliever. 1 Corinthians 7 says, let them go, live in peace, you're not bound. Another would be sexual immorality. And I would say whatever happens in a marriage, if someone is considering divorce, they should not make that decision without talking to a pastor and carefully considering it uh, in all aspects. In Jesus' day, people were divorcing for all kinds of reasons. Men were just leaving their wives. Um, This was common. In the Jewish Talmud, it actually allowed men to divorce their wives if the wife burnt dinner. Or if the guy just found someone he thought was better looking. And so Jesus made another extreme, strong statement. In the same sermon in Matthew 5.31, he said, It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So this was a really extreme statement in Jesus' day. His disciples were like, well, why should anyone get married? This level you're setting. They were really taken back. But today, the thing is kind of reversed. In Jesus' day, it was men divorcing women. Today, 70 plus percent of divorces are initiated by women. And the number one reason is irreconcilable differences. In other words, I'm not happy. I'm not happy. That means if you're a woman, you're twice as likely as a man to say, I quit. And I think this makes sense. With the curse of sin, God said to Eve, you will desire to rule over your husband. And so I think for some women, the temptation is there. Uh, In order to be okay, I have to be able to control him. And if I can't control him, then the next best thing is to quit him. 
And I can't tell you how many Christians have committed adultery or left their spouse for unjustified reasons. And their excuse was, well, yeah, but I think God wants me to be happy. Listen, no, God wants you to be holy. And I would warn us against taking God's name in vain to validate a sinful cause. God's spirit never leads contrary to God's word. And in Malachi 2.16, God said, I hate divorce. There are some circumstances in which he allows it, but that doesn't mean that he ever likes it. He's got very strong feelings. This is sad. This is tragic. This is, this is not the way it was meant to be. Most people today are too casual about it like they were in Jesus' day. Jesus made extreme statements. It's serious. Marriage is meant to last. It's meant to be for life. And so for those of you who are married, you got to take that seriously and protect that marriage and and preserve it and nurture it. Don't take it for granted. Anything you take for granted will eventually leave your life. But I want to encourage you as well. We're going to close with a note of encouragement and hope. If you have committed adultery or you got divorced for an unjustified reason, that can bring up some angst, of course, I got some words of encouragement for you here. In 2 Samuel, we read about how King David was on the rooftop one day, and he noticed Bathsheba bathing on top of her rooftop, and he liked what he saw. And he did not avert his eyes. He looked, and he looked, and looking turned into wanting, and he went, and he committed adultery with her when her husband was off at war, and she got pregnant. And then to cover up the pregnancy, David had her husband killed. He committed murder on top of adultery. And so God dealt with him severely for this. And he says this in 2 Samuel 2, But because by doing this you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. The Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had born to David, and he became ill. The Bible talks about how David pleaded for the child, prayed for the child, but to no avail. On the seventh day, the child died. David went to the temple and he confessed his sins to God and he offered sacrifices and he repented and he worshiped God. And in verse 23, David says, but now he is dead, the child. Why should I go on fasting? Can I bring him back again? No. I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her and she bore a son and he called his name Solomon and the Lord loved him. So a couple things you see in this passage, because people will, they'll ask this often. If I got divorced for an unjustified reason and I got remarried, does that mean we're committing perpetual adultery? What do you do? The answer is no, that's not what it means. If you repent, if you repent, and that's what you see here with David. In verse 14, it says that the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had born to David But by verse 24, after David repented, it said, Then David comforted his wife, Bathsheba. So you see that here is this woman. David committed adultery, had her husband killed. And then you flash forward after David repented and confessed his sin to God. It shows you the extreme mercy and grace of God that he turns around and blesses David and his wife and this child, Solomon, who would become the greatest king in history. And the Lord loved him. By the way, that passage proves that babies who die go to heaven. People will wonder about that. How do we know babies go to heaven? Do babies go to heaven? Do kids go to heaven? Yes, they go to heaven. That passage shows David said, he can't, I can't bring him back, but I will go to him. And so the Lord in his mercy and grace shows uh, compassion to children who are too young to make a decision to accept Jesus. Sometimes Christians will call that like an age of accountability. What age is it? I don't know. God knows it's probably different for different kids, but God shows mercy to children and they do go to heaven. David had that hope to look forward to and David experienced the grace of God here because he confessed his sin. That shows you adultery is not the unpardonable sin. If you confess your sin, God is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. In John chapter 8, I'm closing with this. There was a woman caught in the act of adultery and brought before Jesus. And the Pharisees were trying to trap Jesus. They asked, what should we do with this woman? The law of Moses says to stone her. They were trying to work Jesus into a corner because, yeah, if he didn't stone her, then he was breaking the law of Moses. But if he did stone her, he would lose popularity with the people. 
And Jesus, you can't outsmart Jesus, by the way. He kneels down in the dust. He starts writing in the dirt. We don't know what he wrote. People will speculate, but we don't know. And God didn't think we needed to know. And then Jesus said, okay, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. And this convicted the Pharisees. They dropped their stones and they walked away. And Jesus stood up and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. People will take that passage, that story out of context and use it as a justification to keep sinning. And, and they'll get called out for sin. And they'll say, well, you know, will he without sin cast the first stone? Jesus says he, he doesn't condemn her. And you got to remember, Jesus didn't condemn that woman and he forgave that woman because he knew that he would be the one to pay the price for her sin on the cross. And so he said, I, I forgive you. I didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. And this woman experienced the grace of God. But even though Jesus offers grace to sinners, grace isn't an excuse to keep sinning. And this would be the thought that I wanna close with. If you have been committing fornication or considering adultery or starting to have adulterous thoughts in your mind, the Lord is calling you to confess that sin and to repent of it. And that's what we're gonna do. Close your eyes with me, bow your heads. If there's anything in your life that you need to confess to the Lord, go ahead and just start doing that right now. If there's anything that you need to repent of, the Lord wants you to repent of that and turn to him. And then once you confess that sin and you've asked God to forgive you, receive his forgiveness and let him remove guilt from you. It's better to bring that sin into the light and receive forgiveness than to hide it in the dark and allow it to grow and eventually give birth to death. It's better to kill that sin while it's small than let it grow into something bigger that can destroy you. So we wanna confess these sins to the Lord. We wanna receive his forgiveness. If you're here and you've never experienced the forgiveness of God, you can ask God to forgive you right now. You can accept Jesus as your Lord and savior. That comes from placing your faith in him and believing that he died for you on the cross and rose again. You can just pray that right now on your own. Accept Jesus into your life. I'm just gonna ask you to take this next moment and allow the Holy Spirit to search your heart. And if anything is brought to mind, then you can confess that to the Lord. And then in just a moment, we're gonna stand and we're gonna worship God.